Um, but what a great thing to come together in the name of the Lord. There is no gathering like this. It's a gathering that's hope. There's, uh, you know, if, if you watch the world, you're going to walk away discouraged. There is no way to watch one hour of news at night and walk away any way but discouraged if you listen to the news. You just can't. It's just incredible how discouraging the world is. But there is no way to be with the Lord and walk away with anything but hope. And we have hope because we're with him. And as Irene prayed, he promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He will always be with us. And he's always yearning to be with us. You know, I always like to come home and look at Helen's face and see something that says, I'm glad you're home. But it's a wonderful thing to see somebody's face and to be greeted. Do you know what I mean? Like, good to see you. The Lord is always saying, good to see you to us every day, all the time. One biggest change in my life was to recognize that the first thing I needed to do when I got out of bed in the morning was to greet the Lord. Not think about the day's activities, but to greet the Lord. Because all the time I've been sleeping, the Lord's been thinking about today's activities. He's got that part settled. You know, so I, when I wake up, I admit there is one clear thought that I have to get straight, and that is, what day is it? I do that first, okay? But then greet the Lord. You know, greet the Lord. Say, thank you for being here. Thank you for being with me. And welcome him. If I walked around with you all day and you never said more than a few sentences to me, I would be crushed. Well, the Lord is crushed when we only talk to him like that. And he means for there to be a close relationship with him. So it's so great to be with the people of the Lord where there is genuine hope. And there's genuine not just a little bit of hope, but abounding hope. Today, I want to talk on Jesus had the heart of a servant. And this is going to be kind of two or three things that have to do with this. And the Lord has put a couple things on my heart. And as any of y'all who have ever spoken in front of a group know, which is everybody in here, you know, you have an idea of what you want to talk about, and then you sit down and talk it over with the Lord, and he does some serious rearranging. Sometimes he rearranges it 99%. Do you know that feeling? Some of you know that feeling. You were headed one direction, and the Lord heads another direction. And last night I went upstairs, and I was putting the finishing touches over what I was going to share tonight. And the Lord just kind of sat down and said, I want you down on your knees and coming before me, and I'm going to talk to you about what you're going to share tomorrow. Well, it wasn't my outline, you know, and I don't know if he gave due recognition to how much work I had put on that outline. So I'm going to share a couple of things today, but uh, there are things that the Lord especially put on my heart. And the first one starts in Matthew, the 11th chapter, and the 28th through the 30th verse. And this is three verses that we are all very familiar with. Uh, I don't, I, I think one of the things that I want to say is we should never let familiarity be something that says, oh, I already know that. I already know that. And when I read this verse, you're going to go, yes, I've heard that one 50 times. It's very important that we hear John 3:16 a thousand times. It's very important that we hear common verses that we know many, many times. These are words that came from Jesus. And Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. You go, how does that happen? I don't know how that happens, but it happens. The words that Jesus speaks are spirit and life. In Isaiah, he says, the word that I put forth will not come back to me void. It cannot return to me void, but it accomplishes that which I please in the thing whereto I sent it. I don't know if you've had children. If you've had children and you've asked them to go do something, you would rejoice inside if they accomplished the thing whereto you pleased in the place whereto you sent them. 
it would really cause great rejoicing inside. And the Lord said his word only accomplishes the thing he purposes, and it accomplishes that purpose in the thing he sent it to. It cannot fail. So we sh the enemy will come in quickly and say, well, you know that verse, you learned that one in grammar school, so you don't need to pay attention to that. It's not whether we've learned it in our head, it's whether the Lord has put it into our heart and we're walking it. And I was not, and I'm still not walking this verse as well as I really need to. This verse says, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I want to highlight several parts of this verse just to start with. The first thing is that Jesus is always saying, come. Jesus never delays nor pushes you away or surely says, you don't have an appointment. He never says that. He is not like the doctor nor the dentist, and he is certainly not like a lawyer. Okay. <clears throat> he does not charge by the hour. He is always saying, come. He is always saying, come. One of my great memories of childhood, my mom opening her arms and extending out a welcome for me to come. It was just a great symbol. I loved climbing into my mom's lap. No matter what the problems of the world were, when I was in my mom's lap, they were okay. I hope you had a mother like that, but if you didn't, God is even better than that mother. He is always saying, come. He's not saying you didn't pass the test. And so you have to go away until you are worth my time. This is what the world does all the time. But Jesus says, come. And he goes to everyone and says, come. And every day of our lives, Jesus is saying, come to us. Every single day, he is saying, come. And then he said, I want you to come to me, especially those who are weary and heavy laden. Now, weary and heavy laden means different things to different people. Uh, in this past December, we're doing some stuff at CDC, and it got very, very hectic. And I felt like for two weeks, Bob, I was running on fumes. You know, have you ever had your gas tank go down to empty and then go down to where you could see the empty sign because the arrow had gone that far below? And then where you could see the width of the needle between the needle and the empty sign. You all know what I'm talking about. You shouldn't do this. But if you do that, you recognize you're just running on very, very little. Well, I had been running on very, very little, and Jesus specifically said, I want you to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Think about how many days you've gotten up in your life and go, you can't get there from here. I can't do what's being asked of me today to accomplish. I can't do it. Actually, every day is like that in our life. We just don't recognize it. In Colossians 1, the Bible says that Jesus holds the universe together. Now, it's hard enough holding kids together, but he holds the universe together. And the universe, without Jesus holding it together, would not exist. He's holding all things together. Not only did he create them, they were created by him and for him, and he holds all things together. That's what it says of Jesus. So he says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Not you who are well prepared and know exactly how to do it, but you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you what? 
Now, we know the verse because we've seen it many years, and so we know the answer is rest. But most Christians read this verse as, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more spiritual responsibilities so that you can do more things for me. And that's the way they live their life. They do not come to the Lord as peace and rest. They come to the Lord with the idea that someone's going to put them on another committee or a work group. Um, we have a saying at CDC, one of the most dangerous sayings is, um, two of the most dangerous words are CDC are unfunded mandate, which means you have to do it, but you don't have the money. And that's what we fear from the Lord. And the enemy comes and sows this in our life. If you get close to him, he's going to tell you, oh, you really should have been doing a whole lot more, and I've got to step up your productivity. And you should be over here and doing that. And You can't get into all that. And that's what the enemy says. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says that if you come to me, what you experience is rest. Rest. Now, with our physical body, we have a pretty good grip on rest. I have got a bed, I don't know how your bed is, but my bed is five times more comfortable in the morning than it was the night that I went to bed. In the morning, you just wake up and it's perfectly acclimated to me. I don't know how it is, but my bed is just saying to me, don't get up. And often, I accommodate my bed and just say, okay. Do you know that feeling? I think some of you know that feeling. You've got to have a good mattress, but it does a, it's a great feeling. That's rest that relaxation feeling. Every once in a while at night, you're going to bed and you go, I don't know how we made it through the day, but you stretch your body out and you hit the pillow and you go, oh, no one's asking me to do anything. And all of a sudden you have a physical rest. But Jesus gives you rest on every single level, spiritual, soul, and body. He gives rest. And this call is him extending, saying, come to me and I will give you rest. We don't believe that in our heart. If we really believe that in our heart, we would be beating down the door to Jesus at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock, all the time. But that's his nature. He gives us rest. And then he says, I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, this is the, this is the intimate place that the Lord calls us. Not learn from religion not learn from experience, not learn from anything else. I want you to learn from me. Now you say, yeah, but I mean, I can't have a direct conversation with the Lord where the Lord is absolutely directly dealing just with me. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. That's exactly the way he wants to do it. He is intimate just like that. And he says, take my yoke upon you, the thing that I'm bearing. Well, when I first heard that verse, I said, that's scary. You've got this big giant yoke. But the rest of that verse says, No, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you consider the yoke of the Lord easy? Most people have not considered it, but the yoke of the Lord really is easy because of what Jesus has already done. Because Jesus has already paid the price, He has paid the debt we could not pay, and He has made way that we be transformed fully into His image. So if I was talking to you about, if I went over to Mike's house and said, you know, Mike, do you have water? And Mike said, yeah, I've got water. I said, well, I don't see water. He said, well, if I turn this spigot, water flows out. And I said, well, does water flow out? And he goes over and turns the spigot and water flows out. And I said, that's great. Well, how did you get that water? Well, DeKalb County, I think Mike's in DeKalb County, 
He's got some giant big water tanks. And somebody pumped all that water up there so that it's very high up, and the potential energy from that water makes it flow down through our pipes. Now, that's what Jesus did. Jesus did all the work. He's got it all up there, and he's just saying, I want you to turn the spigot. I want you to turn the spigot. But the work is done. It's there. But the flowing into you is what I want to happen. And where does that flowing come from? It comes from me. That's what he says. Jesus says, the flow comes from me. And so I want you to come and learn from me because this can flow into your life. Now, how, what would happen if uh, I went up to Mike and I said, turning a spigot, that's just too hard. I can't turn a spigot. I just need to say, water appear. You know, Mike would slap me upside the face and go, get with it, Jim. Just turn the spigot and get your water, okay? And Jesus is saying that to some degree. He's saying, look, I've made the way. Come here. I'm not going to go and push you, but I'm asking you to come. And he said right after that, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And this is the great paradox that's in the Scripture. Jesus is at the same time both the lion and the lamb. He has the fullness of the power of the Almighty God, and yet he's gentle, and he's humble in his heart. And when he deals with us, he deals with us in gentleness and in humbleness. Not the way that we think, but that is his nature. That is his heart, and we get to know his heart. The world pushes big, bright, push, loud, immense. But, the, but Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. In the Old Testament, it says it's not by power, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah. So the spirit of the Lord is able to move in the gentleness of Christ. And that nature comes across to us. It's not that we have to be battering rams. And yet the spoken word of Jesus created the universe. So there is tremendous power in the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said, don't leave until you have received power from on high. And what was that power? That power was the Holy Spirit. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't even go out and start ministering until you receive the power from on high. But we think of power as gigantic and smashing. The power is the Holy Spirit. And when, God, when Jesus created the world, he didn't do anything but speak. And he created and that's the way he is. He's gentle in heart. And he says again in the same verse that when you come to me and learn from me that I am gentle in humbleness in heart, you will find rest. Notice rest repeated. He is definitely emphasizing rest. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I want to lay this out very heavy because I think it's the heart of the Lord today. We are trying to find rest in every avenue we can without coming to Jesus. And I find rest sometimes at work by saying, well, I have very competent staff so I can relax. And as soon as I begin to really rely on that, the Lord lets one of my competent staff walk into me and go, I have this problem I have no idea how to solve. And all of a sudden I have a disaster on my desk. And I'm going, yes, but you're my competent staff. You're supposed to solve this so I don't have to worry about it. I don't tell them that. But that's what I think inside. I can't take this. This is big. Couldn't you as one of my competent staff figure this out? They've already worked on it, and they can't do it. Well, as all of y'all know who have supervised anybody, when you have really good people and they can't solve it and they bring it to you, you have a real problem on your hands. 
And I had two or three of those arrive on my desk this week, and when I talked to the Lord about it, he as much as said, I just want to let you know, it's not your competent staff, it's me. It's me. And you, should, you don't rest because you have competent staff. You don't rest because you see a way forward. I, I went into Thursday and I went, this is great, I only have two meetings today. I am going to have six hours to do productive stuff. I had five unscheduled meetings put on my calendar in addition to the two meetings. Everything I was going to do the whole day, I didn't get 10 minutes to do it. I didn't get 10 minutes. Furthermore, I won't tell you how I ate lunch. It would not be healthy. Okay, but I gobbled lunch down on the fly. But the Lord does not leave us in those moments. He is showing us, look, I'm holding all this together, but I don't want you to think that your perception of how well you are in control is the main driver of the rest and relaxation and the peace in your life. It is not. There is no peace except for Jesus. The Bible said He was made unto us peace. He was made peace. It is the nature of Jesus to have peace. You know, when sometimes we'll go to these water parks. I don't go much anymore, but on the edge of the time that I was peeling out from water parks, the kids wanted to go to the high-flying things where you walk up all these stairs and wait in line and go down the thing that's really fast, and some of them are bamboo tube-like things, and you go inside and out and doing all this. But do you know what my fa favorite ride was? The Lazy River. <laughs> you get in there in an inner tube, you don't do anything, and you just have this wonderful ride. Then that's what the Lord does. He gives you a piece like the Lazy River. There's the flow of the Spirit of God moving things along, and you're flowing with it. But His power is what's making things happen. But if we don't come to Him and we go to other things, we're not going to have it. We're not going to have it. And He is saying to His church, the big thing about you being a light to the world is that when the world is in distress, you can be at peace because I am in you. And I give you peace. And that's a light to other people. People are looking at Fran going, Fran, why aren't you frazzled? Why aren't you frazzled? I'm frazzled. Why aren't you frazzled? Because of whom I know. Because who walks with me, who holds my hand, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. That's the reason I'm not frazzled. Do you know how much of a witness that is? That is a tremendous witness just to be unfrazzled in life. Now, as I say that, I go, crud, I was frazzled twice this week I know of, and that's a bad witness. Yeah, but the Lord will bring you on. He'll get rid of that. He'll help that out. He'll move us onward and upward. Paul said, I press on to the high calling of Christ Jesus. But I press upward to the high calling. I'm not looking behind. I'm pressing upward to the high calling. One of the hardest things for us to do in heaven is going to be to look in Jesus' face and remember all the sins that we did and look in his eyes and go, he doesn't know. He doesn't remember them. He forgave them. We don't receive forgiveness. God gives absolute forgiveness. When God forgives our sins, it is as if they never happened in his eyes. But not to us, because we have the enemy sitting right beside us saying, Sasha, you were much less than God wanted you to be, and don't you remember these things? And God's holding this account. There are angels writing this down, Sasha. You know, da-da-da-da-da. Because the enemy always wants our eyes to be on the rears, on the back. But that's not what God says. He says to look forward. Paul says, I am pressing forward to high calling. I am not looking back. How many times in our life do we look back and say, man, if I had just done college better, 
Why did I take that course in the summer? That was a stupid thing. Man, if I had just done this. Oh, if I had just done this. And Jesus is saying, I want you to take all of the if I had just done's and bury them. And just don't even go in that grave anymore. Because he's taking you from now to a wonderful place. So this is talked about in the Psalms. And we know this verse in the Psalms. It says in Psalm 91, 1 through 4, I will say to the Lord, my refuge, excuse me, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. There is a secret place. A secret place. Yes, John. Yes, absolutely. And that is Psalm earlier. Amen. Well, thank you, John. Absolutely. I do want to mention that, that after a time of worship, God will minister to people things to be shared. And I'm going to say this over and over and over, but if you have a scripture, something like that with John, or if you've got a word, absolutely share it. Don't sit back and go, well, things need to go on, or Candy sang seven songs, so we're behind, and we can't do this. None of that. No. You have a word <clears throat> or anything that the Lord's put on your heart, that's absolutely fine. And we've shared before, if you think you have a word and you have something to say and you open your mouth and you go, oh, it's not there, that's fine. It's fine to stand up and say, I think I've got something from the Lord, and then go, well, on second thought, I don't think I do, and sit down. That's fine. That's perfect. That is not a problem. If you think you've got something to share from the Lord, go ahead and move. You're in a place where people will love and hug you more than any other place you're going to find. And this is how we nurture and grow one another. And we are to minister one to another. It says that we're to minister one to another, that we mold each other into the fullness of the stature of Christ in Ephesians 4. So that's the purpose of body ministry, that we minister to one another. So I'm going to say that every week, and John, thank you for that. But if the Lord lays something on you, we can take two hours and just take it. Because if the Lord teaches through his body, that's what he's doing. We do not have a schedule except the Spirit wills. That's our schedule. We'll set out in a path, but this isn't our church. This is Jesus' church. So thank you, John. Yes? Could you say what verse that was, John? 2 Samuel 22, 29 through 33. Okay, good. The whole chapter, 2 Samuel 22 is just excellent. Right. So in Psalm 91, he says that there is a secret place with the Most High. There is a secret place with the Most High. And when you dwell there... You are dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty, in the protection of the Almighty. And Jesus knew that there was a secret place. And Jesus had a secret place. And in the scripture, in Luke 5, 16, it says, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Well, if Jesus was the Son of God, why does he need to slip away to the wilderness and pray? You know, he should kind of just be able to have, this is me talking, he should just kind of be able to say, well, I have this communion with God, God and the Father and I are one, and so, you know, I don't need to go do this special stuff that everybody else does. But Jesus, 
took special time and slipped away from the crowds to pray. Now, Jesus did not have a smartphone. He did not have a smartphone, and he still slipped away. He didn't have a telephone of any sort, nor any electronic device, and he chose to take time and to go away in the wilderness and to have special time with the Father. And one giant key we get from Jesus' life is you have to spend one-on-one time with the Father, with Jesus, to know him. Not that you have to, you get to. But it is something you can't skip. Uh, When Helen and I were engaged and going along, there's a time that you're with six or seven other people, but there's a time that you're just alone together. And if we had never been alone together, and then I said, it's time for us to get married, what do you think about that? She would have gone, what are you talking about? There's time that you have to be alone to get to know somebody. And Jesus had special times with the Father. He needed those things. And again, this is a little bit hard to understand inside because we're very keen on Jesus being the Son of God. But the Scripture refers to Him half the time as the Son of Man. And the Bible says that He was tempted in every respect as we are. He experienced temptation just like me and you. And as the Son of Man, He experienced life just like we did. And He needed to go out and have communion with the Father. Uh, You know, when Jesus went to Gethsemane, it used to bother me that Jesus would go in the garden and pray, is there any way I can skip going to the cross? I didn't like that verse because I was going, wait a second, you're not supposed to pray to skip it. You know this is the purpose you came for. How could you pray, could I skip this? But you see, Jesus was the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. He experienced everything we experienced. And if you give me an option like that, I tend to take options where I don't have to endure tremendous suffering. And when Jesus was looking at the cross, he knew he was not only going to have physical suffering, but that he was going to be separated fully from the Father because he was made to be sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, and he would be entirely separated from the Father. And that's why Jesus said on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he was completely separated from the Father. Jesus in all time and before time had never been separated from the Father. And that is the definition of hell, is complete separation from the Father. So when Jesus is talking, he says, you know, it's important to come and spend this special time that you can come in. Now, I'm going to share kind of a part on the parable of the sower from a different outlook here, because I want to talk, we've talked about the parable of the sower several times, probably talk about it several more times. It's a tremendously important parable. But I want to talk about it from this very important viewpoint that Jesus is calling us, and he's calling us to an intimate time with him to learn from him, not to learn from anything else. And the parable of the sower, I think we all know the parable of the sower. This is the seed sown that's the word of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, there are two parables of the sower. This is the first one, where the seed is the word of the kingdom, and, the, and we are the ground. And so he says when he's interpreting it in Matthew 13, 18 through 23, he says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. 
This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. So the word of the kingdom is Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King. That is the word of the kingdom. When Jesus is presented to somebody as Savior, Lord, and King, the thing the enemy would prefer is that that person just reject it and forget about it. When somebody is presented Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, and they go, I don't have time for that, I'm not interested in that, I have other plans, I want to go this way, you're telling me to go this way, I'm not going to pay attention to that. The Bible says that Satan comes and removes that word from his heart. That Satan comes and picks it up lest he think about it again. But that word is Jesus presenting himself to a person. And when Jesus first presents himself to you, when that word, which is Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, comes to you, it is choosing Jesus or not choosing Jesus. It is not choosing religion and not choosing religion. It is not choosing a covenant and not choosing a covenant. It is choosing Jesus or not choosing Jesus. So when he was talking in Matthew 11 about how important it is to come to him, the call is to come to him. And the first part of this parable is when you have that first opportunity, if you choose to go another direction, the enemy comes in and pulls it away, so you'll have a hard time hearing that word again, hearing about Jesus again. The second phase, though, is the person who hears about Jesus and welcomes it with tremendous joy. And I think many people in this room have had this happen. When you first get your sins forgiven, there is tremendous joy in your life. There has to be tremendous joy. And sometimes we feel the joy in very visceral ways. I mean, it overwhelms our body sometimes. And this is true, and it's absolutely something that should happen. But the Bible says that not if persecution comes on account of the word, but when persecution comes on account of the word. And if you have received Jesus, the enemy is sitting right on the side and is sitting right there to try to bring persecution into your life. And persecution can come in many ways. But one of the biggest ways it comes is peer pressure. And people saying, oh, you're a Christian? You really believe that? Christian, being a Christian is for people who can't cope. That's for people who just need a crutch. You're a Christian? How did you get sucked into that? You hear that voice? That's what the world says. That's what the world says. How could you do that? And, and you, all of a sudden you go, well, if you're going to be like that, we're not going to be friends with you you're not going to have the associates you had. The crowd you ran around with, now you can't run around with again, which is absolutely fine. Just get down on your knees, pray for that crowd, and don't run around with them. But that thing that comes on you is a persecution. And in the New Testament, people lost things. They lost their houses. They lost what they had, but they counted it all joy. 
Now, Helen and I have lived in our house a long time, and we've made a lot of changes, and we built this kitchen up. I'm not too intent on losing that kitchen. There's too much blood, sweat, and tears in building that kitchen. That took a lot of time and a lot of stuff, and we had to tweak a bunch of stuff. You just came and take my kitchen away from me. I'm going to have to get with the Lord before I feel good about that. You got me? These people lost everything they had, and for pure joy, it was nothing because they had Jesus. And Paul kept saying in the New Testament, I count every other problem that we have as nothing compared to the glory to be revealed in Jesus. It's nothing. He says, I count all things as rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And if we can't say that in our life, God is trying to bring us to the place that we say that very same testimony that Paul did. Everything else, losing your kitchen, losing your house, losing your new car, taxes going up fivefold, everything else is nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying. So when this person comes and they have some sort of trial and they go, well, I like those friends. I don't want to lose those friends. I'm sorry they're saying this stuff about it. Maybe I'll be kind of a Christian that goes to church on Sunday and then with my friends Monday through Saturday. That sounds like a good compromise. This will make everybody happy. And you know Jesus wants to make everybody happy. And we reason something like that. <coughs> and we also tolerate sin in our life. And God points out and says, this is wrong. Oh, yeah, I know it's wrong. I'm going to get to that. No, not I'm going to get to that. Deal with it today, now, in the next 10 minutes. When God points it out, there is nothing about, I'm going to get to that. Nothing, I'm going to put that on my Samsung notepad and deal with it within a month. No, when God points it out, it's to be dealt with. So what happens is the person is faced with Jesus or eliminating this persecution or difficulty. But what I want you to see is every single thing in life is choosing Jesus or choosing something else to replace Jesus. And so at this point in the life, what he said was, Jesus is standing there who is above all of these persecutions or difficulties, and I'm call Jesus says, I'm calling you to see I'm higher than those things. Or you can say, I don't like persecutions and difficulties. I don't like this. I, watching a fellow on t TV I really like, he was sharing that in his church in Turkey that people had to walk seven miles, walk seven miles just to get to church. That's a long way. But people, when they walked the seven miles, were singing because they were going to church. Do you see the difference? It's a tremendous thing. Well, I can't say that about myself. I need to be able to say that about myself. But that's what the Lord does. He is so wonderful that these things fade. But the third group of people, I think, is the one that's most relevant. I think looking at everybody here, most everybody's gone through those without any, without, they've gone through them. I won't say without any trouble, but they've gone through them. We've made a commitment to the Lord. But then, in the last one, he said there are two things that are deceptions that cause you to choose things other than Jesus without saying, I'm not choosing Jesus. All right, so I'm going to say that again. These two deceptions cause you to choose things other than Jesus without declaring, I'm not choosing Jesus. And what are these two deceptions? Well, he says they are the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So the worries of the world is a complicated area because if you listen to the world, they will say, well... There are a whole lot of things that you need to be worrying about if you are a responsible adult. 
Have you got that? If you're a responsible adult and you have two children and you're not worrying, you're an irresponsible adult. Because the definition of having two children is you should be worrying. Okay? And you'll see this everywhere. Well, where is your next meal coming from? What's going to happen if the earthquakes in Puerto Rico hit Atlanta? What's going to happen with just tons and tons of things? And as a responsible adult, you need to be dealing with all these things. And you go, oh yeah, and I've got to be a responsible adult. And so what we take on ourselves is just exactly what Jesus wants to take off of us. And we take all these things on and say, somehow I've got to control and assure and optimize and be continually at work on this all the time because I can't handle all that's dealt on me and I really need to try to help other people handle theirs. And oh gosh, how will I ever make it through? And then another person comes up to you and go, I hear you saying, oh gosh, how will I ever make it through all the time? Is that what Jesus does? And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus said, if you come to me, I will give you rest. Has nothing to do with whether the worries of the world are real or not. We do have to have a meal next week. These are things that we know, but Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, he said, but seek first the kingdom of God, which is Jesus, and all these other things will be provided. But we don't seek first the, G- the kingdom of God. We seek the kingdom of God sometimes. But you can't seek the kingdom of God sometimes. You have to seek the kingdom of God first so that we bring it to Him first. Well, this is what the secret place of the Most High is all about. I'm not in this alone. I'm in this with Jesus. He's inside of me. Paul said, don't you know that Jesus lives in you? Jesus lives in me. If it comes at me, it comes at me and Jesus. I am never alone in this. If it's something that the world is telling me i got to worry about, Jesus has to worry about it. My job, the work it says in John 6, is to believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of the believer. And so when I'm following after the Lord, this is on the Lord's shoulders. But you're not sitting there going, as a responsible adult, I have decided not to choose Jesus, but to choose worrying. We don't say, I choose worrying over Jesus. None of us would say that. But it's what we do. We end up worrying rather than dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Do you see? And that's why I'm calling it a deception. It's a deception that we choose something other than Jesus because we don't, we don't openly declare or recognize we're choosing something other than Jesus. So if I had, if I had uh, say, my youngest daughter, Leslie, had overheard Helen and I talking about, boy, we never knew it was going to cost this much raising kids. And did you look at the price of college? Kids, how can they charge this much for college? I think that's a crime. And Leslie goes back to her bedroom and, and is thinking about it. And the next morning she gets up at breakfast and walks in and says, I know money's hard and I really appreciate everything y'all are doing. And Leslie's five years old. And she said, so I've decided that I'm going to fast four days a week so that I can lower the cost of maintaining me as a child. And what would we say to her? Don't even think like that. We have got that covered. You, it pains me 
that you are going and thinking like that. You are my little girl. How can you think like that? Well, you and mom were talking. No, 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 no. Don't think like that. God does that a hundredfold more. How is it that you could worry? Don't you know me? That I am for you. I am with you. I am in you. And you put your eyes on these worries. Remember Peter on the water. Peter was sitting in the boat. Now, I have a lot of respect for Peter. I look at those other disciples. Nobody walked on water. You know? Peter got out. He looked at the Lord and did what could not be done, which is to walk on the water. He looked at the Lord and walked on the water. But then the Bible says he became aware of the wind and the waves. And he put his eyes where? Not on the Lord, but on the wind and the waves. As soon as he put his eyes on the wind and waves, what happened to him? He sank. Now this is what I thought Jesus was going to say. I thought Jesus was going to come up to him and go, Peter, of the twelve, you were the one that stepped out. Congratulations on that. Peter, you looked at me and did things you could never do. You walked in places that would otherwise scare people, and you did that because your eyes are on me. Congratulations on that. I appreciate that. And this small setback we have of you sinking is okay because my hand is here to pick you up, and you're going to get better and better in the future. That's what I wanted Jesus to say. But do you know what Jesus said? Oh, ye of little faith. Woo, stingaroo, isn't it? That little faith, because he would look at these problems and worry about the problems. Do you know what Jesus says to us when we look at the worries in our life? He says, oh, ye of little faith. I'm here. I'm here. I'm bidding you come. Don't you know worries can't overcome me? So the enemy, do you see how deceptive, though, he gets our eyes and our hope and our joy and our peace over here onto worries, and we didn't choose to leave Jesus, but we did leave Jesus. Do you see? And so this is a deception. So all of this comes down to, are you, are you coming to Jesus into the secret place of the Most High, or are you not for some other reason? either by choice or by deception. So the second deception is the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches is deceitful. Most of the time I grew up, I thought if I just had 50% more money than I have right now, things would work, I'll be happy. Long, long time I believed that. I really enjoyed this billionaire who came on the radio, not millionaire, billionaire, came on the radio. I loved what he said. He said, those people who say, if you have plenty of money, you'll be happy, don't have plenty of money, because it gives you no happiness. But if you don't have it, you think if I can just get there, that's where it is. The reason I haven't got happiness is it's so doggone hard to get there. But other people have gotten there, but I'm going to try. I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps today and do better than I did last year. We're going to get that happiness, and it's deception. It's a deception. Jesus said a man's life does not consist of the possession of things. And the reason that he said that is that a man's life does not consist of the possession of things. He's trying to tell us, don't fall for that. The whole lust of the eyes is that exact same deception. But what I want us to see is we don't make a choice and say, 
Jesus is over here. I'm going to go for material things over here and drop Jesus. We try to merge it all together and not think we're dropping Jesus, but we are dropping Jesus. Because what we're saying is these things bring happiness, and what Jesus said is that he came, that we have life and have it more abundantly. And you can't turn to Jesus and say, you're abundant life, and I'm pursuing riches over here to get abundant life. You can't do that, and yet we do it. But we don't say, talk that way to Jesus, we just kind of default over and try to make this happen. Uh, if you're ever supervising people, they'll take on a whole lot of things. They can, they can handle change in a lot of ways. You start touching their salary, and you've got people showing up in your office. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Some of you have got to know what I'm talking about. You can fiddle with things, but don't touch my money. You can say we've got to you know, work a different way, have teams to do this. We can do all that, but don't start touching my salary. It's a sensitive thing. Because we have this innate thing that Jesus is trying to free us from, where we believe the deceitfulness, that we believe riches will bring happiness. So if you go past those things, you have chosen Jesus. You have not fallen into those deceptions, and it is not an option whether you produce fruit. It's only an option how much fruit you produce, 160 or 30 fold. But it's not an option how, whether you'll produce fruit. You, if you go through these things, you automatically are close to the Lord, and because you're close to the Lord, you automatically produce fruit. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. That's the fruit of what God's Spirit is. Not the fruit of our flesh, but the fruit of what God said. So he said, at every stage, there's a place then where God is saying, Jesus is saying, come, and we're either choosing not to come, or we're being deceived and going another direction. It's a whole different way of looking at that parable. It's choosing Jesus or not choosing Jesus. It turns out everything in life is choosing Jesus or not choosing Jesus. Every religion on this earth is distinguished by how it regards Jesus. Only Christianity regards Jesus as the Son of God equal to God. Every other religion regards him as lower, if they regard him that he exists at all. It's the distinguishing factor. Now, when Jesus was walking around, this, I, this, I hesitate to tell this story, but this is in the Bible. So in Luke 10, 38 through 42, he says, um, As they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to the Lord and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, well, first of all, most of you know the story. What do you think the Lord's going to say? And I can't remember the first time I read this verse, but my inclination would be to say, the Lord would say, Mary, you've been sitting here for an hour. Martha's been working. Can you lend her a hand? She's got a big load. Something like that. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Martha, Martha. And it's always something when Jesus says your name twice. Always get ready. Did your parents ever say your name twice to you? It was significant after that. I guarantee it. He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. 
but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, it's not the way I would have written the story. I would have I had other endings. Mary, you go do it. Martha can sit down for a while. She gets a turn. Do you see? But what Jesus said was striking. Only one thing is necessary. Do you see? And when, when we get to heaven, we're going to be really distraught about ourselves, about how much we worried. When we see that if we had taken Jesus and put him as king of our life, that is the one thing that is necessary. And the rest flows out. He takes care of the rest. It flows out. But did you notice how he described Martha? You are worried and bothered by so many things. Are we worried and bothered by so many things? I can definitely tell you in my life I've been worried and bothered by many, many things. I'm looking at your faces right now, and some of you could give me a list of 15 things right now you're worried and bothered by. And Jesus is saying to me, and he's saying to you, there is only one thing necessary. And if you will come to me, I'm going to pull you into a place that is in the secret place of my Father, where you learn from me, and everything flows out from that and is taken care of. It has nothing to do with whether you see how it will be, and that will be the thing. Martha, Martha, you are bothered and worried about so many things. Where I, where I work, I keep some scripture verses right below my monitor, you know, because I'm on the computer a bunch, and so I keep a little scripture, several scripture verses there that are maybe scripture verses I've had difficulty remembering or something I want to memorize. I'm going to put this one there. Martha, Martha, you are worried about so, and bothered. Worried and bothered by so many things. And I'm putting it there for me, because surely my tendency is to be worried and bothered by so many things. You know, when someone comes up and talks to you, if their voice is calm, you're calm. If their voice isn't calm, it produces agitation in you. Jane, what are we going to do? What happened? You know, I, I tell this about Helen, but it is, a, it is definitely an epinephrine point for me in our house. At intermittent times, maybe twice a year, Helen will scream. A scream is incredibly non-communicative in terms of detail. <laughs> you know, and what I, what I found is it's usually a varmint of some sort. You know, <laughs> it might just be a roach. A roach can evoke a scream. I had to learn that. But it also could be a mouse. And a mouse evokes a scream. And you'll hear Helen sing, but she never touches a note like she has when she screams. I mean, it's a high-pitched thing. I don't know. Her arm could be cut off. You don't know. And so when she's screaming, I have to stop whatever I'm doing and go straight. Not a common thing. Maybe, what, Helen, twice a year, something? It depends on how good the roach killer is. But, you know, it's, she just doesn't like certain things, and those are my duties to handle a couple of those things, mostly dealing with varmints, like I mentioned. But if somebody comes up to you and calmly says, you know, I'm looking at the door entryway, and best I can tell, I think there's a dead roach there, but as I approached, he seemed to move. I would appreciate if you'd take care of that. <laughs> That's an entirely different approach than the blatant scream. 
Are you with me? I think y'all know what I'm saying. Okay, well, Jesus said, I'm going to put such a peace within you. I don't care what comes at you. Instead of looking at it, you're looking at me. You're looking at me. A lot of times in my life, it's been helpful to me to turn to the Lord as if he's standing there and saying, do you see that? Do you see that? And just to let him know, I know he's there because nothing comes in front of me that's not coming to him. Well, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Now, you might say things, even when Jesus was alone and the disciples brought him food, and in John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, how can that be your food? It is his food. It transcends the physical. When you're doing the will of the Father, that is what sustains you. It's not an option. It is what sustains you. So when Jesus came, he came to do the will of the Father. Jesus came as the Son of Man, was faced with the exact same choice we have, he had the choice of to give himself over to the Father's will or to pick out his own will and to go it that way. That's what Jesus had that choice. The same as we have the choice to give ourselves to the Lord or not. And we have that choice every day. Sometimes we get that choice two or three times an hour. What happens to somebody if they walk up to you and Cassie, they say, Cassie, you always and then describe a bad thing. Or come up to you, um, I'm going to pick on Cassie and Mike because they're new and so they get picked on. But, um, or came up to Mike and said, Mike, you never listen. Those are strong words. As a matter of fact, if you're ever in couples counseling, one of the things they do is say, take the word always and never and don't use them. Don't use them ever. Just don't use them. But when someone says something like that, do you know what it means for you to bristle? You bristle, and Mike goes, what do you mean I never listen? I'm listening right now. I'm perfectly wide open to that insane remark you just made. <laughs> do you know? But you resist it. Do you see when that comes? You resist that because of the tone and people saying something, and you know that's not true. But what if you were to sit there and go, okay, this person telling me I'm never listening is upset. I would like for them not to be upset. I'm going to do what it takes for them not to be upset. And not, look what you did to me. Because when your eyes are, what are you saying about me? You've attacked me. Jesus never responded to attacks on him, but always thought about the attacker and how he could build up the attacker. Even on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you see that? So Jesus chose the will of the Father, not a small task. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, the Scripture says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Jesus was present before creation and was equal with God. We don't quite understand how that works, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father can be equal, but that doesn't matter. They are equal. They are the, the, the one true God, but they existed before time. Now, Jack, we have horrible problems with existed before time. Okay, but time actually has a beginning. <laughs> this is the cute part. And my question is, well, when? <laughs> well, wait a second. You see, time and space have a beginning. They, time and space have not always been. This is why when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them the great I am. If I told you I was the great I am, you'd wait 10 years, look at me in the grave and go, there's the great he was. <laughs> Do you see? But God says he's the great I am. He transcends time and space. He created time and space. Now this is really cool because you see the Bible says God from the beginning intended on there being two creations. There was a creation and God knew this. These things blow your mind because it says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And we go, no, he wasn't slain then. He was slain 33 BC or some, AD or something like that. That's when he was slain. What is this from the foundation of the world? No. God could see everything from the beginning. And he planned on there being a short creation and an indefinitely long everlasting creation. And the short creation is only for the shortest time. It's just a squiggle of time that we're in. And then there is everlasting life. But for the short creation, he made enough time that we could get to know him and choose him and choose him, and he made way that we would have way to choose him, and by our free will to say, I want you. And by wanting him and believing in him, he knew he would from the beginning have to sacrifice his son Jesus. And Jesus knew from the beginning that he was going to have to go to the cross. He knew that man was going to fail. Satan did not slip into the garden. God permitted Satan in the garden for God's purposes. And there had to be a choice to choose God. Just like with me and Helen, you couldn't just say, well, we found a woman, she was 563, and your number was 6,422, and our computer matches that, and that's Helen, so you're married. No, that's not the way marriage works. And that's not the way it works with God. We are not robots. He wants to show himself to us and for us to choose him. It's very, very important. But he knew from the beginning. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit looked at the first creation and said it's going to be for a short time, but we want man to be able to fellowship with us. And for a short time, we're going to offer that opportunity, and then we're going to undo creation. And it says in Revelation that everything that is will be destroyed and that God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and new earth, there is no evil. There is no pain. There is no suffering. There is none of the things that we look at in this creation and go, how could a loving God allow these things to exist? Well, a loving God has to allow these things to exist because he has to give us the option of choosing him or not choosing him. 
And the definition of evil is not choosing God. That's what evil is. It manifests itself in all sorts of acts. But evil is not choosing God. That's what evil is. So we have this for a short time, but then we have a new creation and there is no evil. There is no evil. Now I'm personally bothered by the fact that there's no night. When am I going to sleep? Do you see how primitive I am on these things? But the Bible says that God and the Son will light heaven. How do they do that? I don't know how they do that. And there's no night and you don't get tired. And the Bible says that we have a body that will be transformed to be like the body of His resurrection. What do we know about the body of His resurrection? The body of His resurrection could go through walls. It says the disciples were gathered together in one place and Jesus appeared in the midst of them. He can go through walls. But it says at the Sea of Galilee, He went down and ate fish with them. He had a body that could go through walls and could eat fish. What happened to the fish when He went through the wall? Do you see? It's better than we're thinking. These little details get taken care of. And we will have a body transformed to be like his body. I want that body. I, I can tell you from talking to Helen this morning that she wants that body. And I know for a fact Gary wants that body. But that's where we're headed, not maybe. That's what we're going to get. And this is for a short time. But Jesus emptied himself, and he knew in advance it was going to occur. Now, if I was building something for one of my kids, and I had a hammer, and I was doing hammering things, and I knew that in the next 30 seconds, one of my blows was going to miss the nail and hit my thumb, what would I do? I would stop hammering. Do you see? Jesus knew when he came, he was headed to suffering. He was headed to suffering. When we read in the Bible and we read in the wilderness and we say, well, that was when Jesus was tempted, was in the wilderness. Yes, he was tempted in the wilderness, but that was not his main trial. His main trial was he knew he was going to be separated from God. And he didn't get that announcement at the 11th hour. He has known that from all time. So in the scripture, when Jesus is talking with his disciples, he says, you who have been with me during my trials... Well, the disciples were not with Jesus until after he came out of the wilderness. So Jesus' trials, according to Jesus, began after he came out of the wilderness, or he had trials. They weren't his only trials. He was tried in the wilderness. But he had trials all the way through his life, and the biggest trial was to lay down his life and knowing he would be separated from the Father. It's always, like I said, Jesus cried out, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Not, Father, Father, why is there so much pain? Father, Father, why are these things nailed through me? That's not what he yelled. He yelled. yelled. He yelled out, Father, Father, where are you? You have left me. That's the thing that bothered me. The scripture says he emptied himself. He emptied himself to come. And that he, he was obedient to the point of death. Obedient to the point of death. And Paul is saying, let this same mind be in you. How much of that mind is in me? Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. I had to drive somewhere today, and they get, these people called me up, and I had to give a talk somewhere, and they said, don't worry, you can just park in the visitor's parking lot. Not a problem, and we'll stamp your thing. I drove into that visitor's parking lot. There was no parking space. 
There was no park. This was at Emory. There was no parking space remotely. There were people flagrantly parking on those yellow lines, you know, that go back and forth. You could barely squeeze your car through. And I hate to say this in front of all of y'all, but the first thought I had was, these people deceived me. That was my first thought. They made me think, no problem, just run in there and you'll get a parking space. There was no parking space. So I wanted to take my car and go up and park by the building and just let them deal with it. That is not God. That's me. Do you hear that? That's my flesh saying, I don't like what's going on. And so I didn't really know what to do about it at the time. And so I pulled into one of these. I looked in front of me and somebody was pulling out of an illegal place. And I said, well, I'm going to pull into that illegal place. That's the best I can do. But inside, I just felt like, nah, this is not right. But I did it anyway. And I pulled into the illegal place, and I said, I got 10 minutes before I walk up there. In three minutes, I hear this, room, room. And this car right behind me pulls out of a legal place. And I just have to back up, zip around, and all of a sudden, I'm in a legal place. And as if it, the Lord spoke to me and said, Jim, Jim, you are worried about so many things. Just like he said that. Like, why, with such a little thing, does your faith leap out the window? And the reason my faith leaps out the window is I unfortunately have this obsession with what bothers me. Do you see? And I go, how is this going to work? And once I say, how is it going to work? God is going, you always leave the how to me. You know the how maybe 1% of the time. That's it. Jesus emptied himself. And the worst part about it was we commented in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him to be sin. We don't talk about this a lot. This is terrible. The Bible says, literally, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You just, we can't conceive how horrible that was to Jesus. We talk about him taking the sin upon his life, and we think about the physical suffering. But sin completely separated from him from God and let him experience all the evil that there is on his body. Absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. And he made him to be sin for us. He emptied himself. Is it such a big thing for me to be patient looking for a parking place? That's ridiculously. I'm ashamed to share it with you. I probably will delete it out of the tape. You know, but it's a terrible thing. But we are concerned about so many things rather than saying, look what the, the Father is here. The wings of the Almighty cover me. And this thing is blowing through. The pestilence is coming by. The hurricane is going this way. But the Father has me. And then, in, I'm very close to the end here, in Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, the rulers of this world, the Gentile lords, rule it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus said the opposite of the way the world goes, 
where those who are exalted are in high position and get plenty of recognition. The opposite of that is what I want for you. The greatest among you will be underneath all the others pushing up. Underneath, providing underpinning for everybody else. That is the greatest among you. Does that person get recognition? Not by the world they don't, but they get recognition from Jesus. And it is only Jesus' recognition that makes a difference. In John 5, Jesus says something that is incredibly important. He said, how can you believe when you seek the praise and glory that comes from men, excuse me, when you receive the glory that comes from men, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? How can you believe when you seek after that glory from men rather than the glory that comes from God? And that's a rhetorical question. You cannot believe. If you live your life saying, I want glory from people, that is the pride of life, and you're going to miss God. And Jesus is saying, I want you to step into this secret place in the Most High where it turns out that God turns out to be the most important. And it's what, what God thinks about it. Remember John Holt told me a story where he, the Lord encouraged him to put a cross out on his front yard. And he didn't really know how to do it, but he knew it was the Lord doing it. And he put a cross out on his front yard. And I can't remember if it was a hurricane or a tornado, but anyway, it came through his whole neighborhood and ripped up every house and everybody on the front, back, left, right, and everything. Somehow, his yard and his house was spared. You don't know what the Lord's doing. The Lord is faithful. And getting the praise and glory of men is so small. We need just to let that go and say, this is what makes a difference. But if the Lord is not big to us, His glory that He wants to give to us is not big to us. The approval of the Lord is not big to us. It makes much more different what my cousin says. It makes much more difference what my neighbor says than what the Lord says. But He's saying you've, we've got to be in that place and that He came to serve and not to be served. And the other thing He said in John 6.38 was that He came not to do His own will but the will of the Father. And surely one of the things that the Lord is encouraging us to be in is to know Him and to know His will. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that He prepared places for us to walk in. That He has prepared works for us to do. And He wants us to get with Him because He's got prepared places for us to go. He's got things for us to do. He has those things. And one of the greatest parts about it, Joe, is that He's got things that are for you to do that no one else can do. It's an amazing thing to me that God ever made me in the first place. If I was God, I would have skipped me. I've just been too much hassle. I mean, I'm looking at my whole life. God's been so patient with me so many times. I would have just said, let's just skip this gym and go right to another gym. You know? But God looked at all time and decided there needed to be me. He wanted there to be me. He wanted there to be me, and he created me. That's a tremendous amount of love that just jumps on you from the beginning. And the way he wanted me to be, he's already got set up. And it all works because I'm intimately connected with him, and it all falls apart when I turn from being intimately connected with him. It is both simple and deep at the same time. It's simple, the gospel is simple, but the depth of the gospel is very, very deep. 
Because the depths of the Lord, who can know the ends of His mercies? You know, it says that His mercy is renewed every morning. I have relied on that. (laughs) I have relied on His mercies are renewed every morning. Because I have tapped into His mercies deeply. But they're renewed every morning. That is incredible. His mercies are renewed. So the call of the Lord is this. He is humble. He is always calling us to come. And when we learn of Him, we learn of something completely different of the world. And what we learn is that He is so immensely valuable, all this other doesn't even matter. Martha, Martha. All of these others don't matter. There is really only one thing. This is incredible to think about, but I have not lived it the way I'm talking about it. There is only one thing. And through that one thing, following the Lord, the rest of these things flow. They just flow naturally. God's already got the Holy Spirit up in the water tower. He's just saying, come on down here and turn on the spigot. Your will is the turning on of the spigot. Whether the water comes is up to God. And he's got the Holy Spirit just ready. So he's calling to us. Well, this is a big deal in a Christian life. Most Christians don't live like this at all. This is not first base to them. But Jesus said it's absolutely fundamental. I'd like you to walk away, though, just thinking about Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Because we hear that verse all the time. But an encounter with Jesus should always produce rest. Rest. And if you're encountering the Lord and you're walking away not in rest, there's something wrong. It may be sin in your life. It may be the way you're putting things to God. It may be you're boxing God in. could be a lot of different things. But an encounter with the Lord produces rest. But Jesus turned to some people and said something. And this is kind of a stirring thing. I do want to mention this. In Luke 6, he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, this is not something that I could share and um, be a popular pastor for sure. But listen to what Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? He said, the person who does what I say is like a man who builds his house on a firm foundation. The person who doesn't is like a man who builds his house on sand. But he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And that's a word to us. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and go, that was very interesting. Yeah, I really believe that. I'm not going to do it, but I believe it. Can't do that with Jesus. He'll be all over you like white on rice. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? And what God is speaking to us a lot of times is just to say, you know what to do. I'm just asking you to do what you know what to do. You know to come to me. You know not to be like Martha. You know I'm the only thing, but you don't do it. And you have very good excuses when you rank your excuses with other people. But you don't have squat excuses when you look me in the eye. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Now, I'm saying those words 99% to me. Because I find I see these things, and then I tend not to go the direction of the Lord, but I tend to comment people. And I'll just close on this one thing. The Lord got a hold of me about saying anything negative about people. Anything. And every once in a while, there were certain people I just couldn't talk about. Because you can't say anything negative. So you just can't talk about them. Because I couldn't think of anything positive to say. But I found in my life that the Lord jumped on me eight, nine, ten times. 
And this is what I was doing. I was sharing with somebody else, we need to be praying for Mary Sue. Let me tell you what happened in Mary Sue's life. And then I would share something in Mary Sue's life, which was shocking. And he said, and, and people would look at that and go, whoa, gosh, we do need to be praying for her. She's got herself into a terrible mess. But the Lord got a hold of me and he said, I, the first part's good. We need to be praying for Mary Sue. Take the second part and delete it. Don't give them the juicy gossip details. Just don't. It's enough to say we need to be praying for Mary Sue. You can pray and lift somebody up. You do not need to know the juicy details, which then monopolize your thoughts afterwards. Not that we need to pray for her, but how did all that happen? And what, who, whose fault was this? And I'm not going to let my daughter do that. And whatever. But just don't do it. I'd say the Lord jumped on me 10, 15 times on that. And a lot of times, I know such good details. You know? And I'm not talking about lascivious things all the time, but just people who choose themselves and don't choose others. Just people who've been very inconsiderate and it causes a burden on my life. And instead of praying for them and just praying for them, I'll come to my wife and say, let me tell you what happened. This happened here. This person was really inconsiderate because they were inconsiderate. I have a huge load on my life. And God said, delete, 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 delete. Just skip that. Why are you saying that? Because I want Helen to think, oh, my husband, he's suffering, and what a great thing. That's what I want. You see? She never thinks that. Okay. I'm just kidding. I, but y'all know, I'm trying to tap the feelings that are inside each one of us. That's why I'm trying to use those examples. And Jesus said, if you come to me, your heart is not to tell the juicy details, but to get them lifted up from the pit that they're in. They are in miry clay. You need to help them get up and out of the miry clay. Do you see the difference? So in the Lord, there is always victory. This is still the good news of the kingdom. But he's calling us to be servants, to be humble, and to gather that servanthood and humbleness from being close to him and learning from him. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, thank you that you're faithful when we're not faithful. Thank you that you're patient when we are not worthy of patience. I ask, Lord, that you give us a special vision of how great you are in each one of our lives so that we will be drawn unto you as we have never been drawn and we will not be distracted. And if persecutions come, we will value you above persecution. And if deceptions of riches and worry come, we value you much more than any of those. I ask now that you do, Lord, as only you can do by your Spirit, change us and draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.